You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. Let's go to God in prayer before we go to his word. Our Father and our God, uh, we sang about uh, mercies in disguise. Uh, While some mercies are that way, there are a lot more that have been revealed. And uh, Lord, we live, uh, walk every day in light of your mercies that are very evident. And uh, we are grateful for them. But yet you call us, Lord, in light of this great mercies that you have shown us, to live in a manner that is worthy of those who have received such mercies. And quite often we fall short in that. We thank you that uh, you're our Father. Um, In your Son, we have a sympathetic High Priest, and your Holy Spirit indwells us to form in us uh, Christ-likeness so that we may be conformed to the image in which you created us. I pray, Father, that as we hear from your Word, your Spirit would teach us, and uh, you would open our hearts to receive your Word. And... uh, your word would find good prepared soil that soil that would, uh, uh, Lord, bear much fruit for your glory as we live as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd be pleased to do that with us today, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking a lot about walking. Um, walking in love is uh, today's passage, chapter 4 verses 25 to chapter 5, verse 2. Our section has to do today with about uh, what God is doing to build community and how we work with God in that and not oppose Him in His work. Uh, But but what erodes uh, community? Talk back. What are are the things that erode community, that destroy community, that corrupt community, even Christian community for that? Fear. Fear. Suspicion, division, gossip, hatred, lying. We're going to talk about that today. Yeah, you know, uh, there are mild forms of uh, uh, things that corrupt us. There are extreme forms like hatred and so on. But but even there are other things that that creep in and erode our community. But, But what's the opposite? What are the things that build community? Love, patience, forgiveness, understanding, trust, acceptance, friendship, kindness. Wow, we know a lot of things. Uh, uh, So I I pray and hope that there's more of the latter than uh, the former that's found in our community. We've been uh, looking at Ephesians, and we are in the second uh, part of the letter. Uh, The central thought of Ephesians, you know, uh, sometimes in our, uh, in how we read the Bible, uh, we read the Bible like no other book, not in a good sense, but in a bad sense. Most books we read from beginning to end, or if we read a section, we, we, we read that section. But uh, we, when it comes to the scripture, we pick a verse there, a story here, uh, and, and, and we read them as though each of those has have a life of its own. Because it's God's word, uh, they do much good, but scripture is meant to be read as a whole, uh, and the parts in light of the whole. So while we love passages in Ephesians like, be filled with the spirit, or husbands love your wives, uh, or... Um, if we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one may boast. We love all of these, but what is Paul's central message in uh, Ephesians? I believe it's chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. We're in the midst of that glorious salvation for which Paul blesses God. He tells us that not only has God saved us, but he has made known to us the mystery of his will. So this is mystery revealed that according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. 
We started our uh, time in, in the Word way back in February by looking at the big story of the Scriptures. And the big story of the Scripture is God is the God who created all things good uh, because of the sin of man. Uh, that wholesome creation was shattered into pieces uh, at a, a opposition and hostility to each other. And what God is doing in Christ is regathering all of those things under Christ to make them whole and new again. And Ephesians lays out how God is doing that. He started by saving us through the precious work of His Son on the cross. But that work will continue on that one day all things, things on heaven and things on earth will be brought under Christ and He will make all things new. And in order to do that, He has not only raised Jesus from the dead, He has exalted Him above all powers and authorities. So these powers and authorities that divide us and break us and corrupt our community, they are not in power anymore. Christ is above all of them and Christ is given as the head of the church. And through the church, Christ is proclaiming to the powers that He is Lord. And He is gathering all things in Himself to unite them. And God is able to do it. That's how Paul ended chapter 3. He who is able to do far more abundantly than we can even ask or think. That's the God we have and He's our Father and we are His family. And from chapter 4 onwards, what Paul does is if that's what God has done, uh, then we ought to respond to what He has done by living in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is through how we live that God shows the powers, God shows the world what He is doing, what He has done in Christ and what He's going to do one day. So our way of living, uh, our, our conduct, our behavior, especially in community, not just as individual Christians, but how we relate to one another is vital to our witness. It is not only to the people, but also to even powers and principalities and authorities that stand opposed to God as they see us living in unity, as they see us doing those things that build community. That's how they are put in notice that they are no longer in charge. Christ is in charge. And the opposite is also true. When we don't live that way, we, through our lives, suggest to the powers that maybe they are still in charge. Maybe Christ is not Lord. Maybe things are not united. In order to do that, we saw last week, uh, Paul tells us that we ought to walk in a way, but we ought also not to walk in the way we used to live. You don't no, no longer walk like the Gentiles, we saw last week. Because why? Because that's not how you learned Christ. That's not how you were taught in Him. What we were taught in Him is to put off the old way of living when we were still under Adam, still under the power of the, the devil and the flesh and the world, still in bondage to sin and death. We need to put off those things and be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we may live in the manner that is in accordance with the one whom we have put on, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, uh, who is our head. So our life has to conform to our new identity. And Paul now puts hands and feet to that somewhat abstract uh, instruction to put off and put on. What is it that we need to put on? What is it that we need to put off? Uh, he, he, from this section on, from chapter 4, verse 25, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20, Paul is going to flesh out what we saw last week. What does it mean to put off that which was our past? And what does it mean to put on and live in light of that which is our present reality. In today's section, he is going to talk about several aspects of life together. In the next section, chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, he's going to focus on things that we ought to leave behind. They have no more part in our lives. Uh, and after a short summary in chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, he will go on in chapter 5, 21 to chapter 6, verse 9. It's not just our conduct in community, it's even our conduct in our families, how husbands and wives relate to each other, uh, how parents and children relate to each other, how masters and slaves relate to each other. In all of this, we ought to live out that unity that God is bringing about in creation. And then in chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, this life that we live before God, in light of what God has done, uh, this is not a life that is where the, this is a life there's much opposition to this there are spiritual forces that still try to take us captive still try to conform us to the old ways of living life so in chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 we have the so-called spiritual warfare section but that spiritual warfare section is not some standalone section where we go battle the devil it's it's all part of living under the authority of Jesus Christ in unity and 
rejecting those things that oppose our Lord and the unity that he has created. So in today's section, Paul looks at various things. Some people look at it in five sections. Others look at it in seven. I'm going to look, go with the seven, breaks it down uh, further. Uh, but this, there's a parallel section to this. We're going to look at these verses as we go through each topic. But the parallel section to this, Paul writes something very similar to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 14. But now, he says, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All of these things are perfectly summarized by the title of our message today, Walking in Love. Walking in Love involves putting away some things and putting on these things. So Paul's concern here is that we need to reject that which destroys community, that which opposes what God is doing, and instead we ought to promote that which builds community. All that as witness to what God's doing in uniting all things in Christ Jesus. And that requires certain practices, practices that are indicative of our transformation uh, from our old self, who we were in Adam, to our new self, who we are in Christ. These are, these, are the, these are the good works which God has prepared for us to do. Whenever we think of good works, sometimes we think of extraordinary deeds of goodness, like uh, charity, works of charity and so on. But everything from how we treat each other, uh, how we relate to one another, how we work, uh, our integrity, all of this is part of the good works. And, uh, and when we live such a way, it shows to the world, why are these people different? It's because of what Christ is doing, and, and, and they give glory to our Father, as, as Jesus tells us. So the, the structure for each of these, or I should say most of this, Paul would first say uh, there's an exhortation to be rid of something, get rid of, for example, falsehood. But then there's also, it's accompanied by an appeal to develop something, instead speak truth. Last time he said, don't just be naked, you know, don't just put off, put on. Also, is important. So that's what he's going to do. And then here in this section, he will also give you a, a motivation, a reason why we ought to put off, why we ought to put on. And the summary of this whole section is this. As children of God, be like your father. You know, uh, Paul would use the language of be imitators of God. That sounds heavy. Right? What, me, God? But as often as we call God our Father, we as His children ought to be like Him who is our Father. So treat others as God has treated you. And, and love is the ultimate virtue of imitating God and uh, yielding to the Spirit so that He can form Christ in us. So let's look at each of this in turn. First, Paul says, no falsehood, put off falsehood, put on truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Therefore, ties it back to 424, where we are told to put off and put on. And that's, so we have put away, we have put off. We are new people. We are being renewed in our minds by the Holy Spirit. So Paul exhorts the Ephesians and us toward practical expressions of this new life to which God has called us uh, by placing us in Christ. Paul, Paul quotes from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. These are things that you shall, you shall do. Uh, the prophet writes, uh, speak truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. In the context in Zechariah 8, God is going to come and dwell in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to be called the city of truth. I think New York will be called that someday? <laughs> one day, yes. The city of truth. Well, if, if God's going to dwell there, it's going to be the city of truth. It's, it's necessary that the people who live in that city speak truth and not, uh, not falsehood. Deception, lies, all this belongs to the former way of life. You know, the, the, the falsehood here, the, the spoken lies is what is in focus, but, but, but all forms of falsehood ought to be put away. Any distortion of truth, it belongs to 
the former way of life. Instead, he says, speak the truth. Uh, it's more than just not, not just lying. You know, if we speak the truth, we speak the truth as in uh, speaking God's word, God's grace into people's lives, the truth of what God is doing in, in, this, in this world, the truth of the gospel, not just in the sense of initial salvation, but as an ongoing sense where the gospel requires us to live a different kind of life as people have experienced God's grace and mercy. What Paul is saying is put away everything that's deceptive. Instead, everything we do ought to be characterized by integrity in all aspects of life. Christian life is not fake it till you make it. It is, it is to live that truth. And he gives the reason or the motivation. Interesting, it's not because God is truth. He is that. John 17 verse 3. It's not because Jesus is truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's not, that's not the reason he gives us. It's not because it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. It's not because God commands it. He does. Paul says, but because we are members of one another. Speak the truth because we are members of one body. You know, falsehood destroys communities, families, perverts justice. So truth is indispensable for community. Falsehood uh, corrupts the body. Genuine community can't be built on deception. And the basis for that truthfulness is our oneness in Christ. Earlier on, chapter 4, we, in verse 17, we were told to speak the truth in love. Or truthing in love is the literal transla translation. In everything we do, it's not just speaking. Our lives ought to be characterized by integrity because uh, truth and love go together. To, to, to love somebody is to speak the truth to them, to act honestly uh, toward them. Interestingly, here it, it says toward one another, although speak the truth with this neighbor, that's anybody, and, but it qualifies it by saying we are members of one another. That doesn't mean we can lie to people who are not part of the body. <laughs> uh, there are people who do that. When I was living in India, we were told that you don't go to a, a business run by a particular community of people uh, right after they have come back from worship because they are zealous to get you. Uh, uh, so that's not the way we ought to live. Whether it's insiders or outsiders, we are to be characterized by um, truthfulness and honesty. Our, our view of relationships ought to be seen in light of the gospel. We belong to each other in Christ. We are united to each other by the Holy Spirit. So if I belong to you, you belong to me, uh, I can't deceive you. I can't uh, act falsely toward you. Paul goes on to anger. Anger. There, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, people wonder if there are four commands here or three commands and uh, motivation. Whichever way you take it, the first one, be angry, we take that as the license to be angry. Right? Ah, it says, be angry and do not sin. It could very well be an imperative. Uh, there are, sometimes anger just comes upon us for no reason. Right? Uh, or some minor irritation. But sometimes uh, anger is a very thought-out response to a terrible evil. Some of you saw this, one of the family members of the victims of the Buffalo uh, shooting talking to the media. She was, how could you? How dare you? You saw the anger. And that anger is right. How could someone who just went shopping be shot dead for no reason except for the, the, the color of their skin? That's terrible. It should make you hang angry. Um, sometimes living in community, people offend you. People get on your nerves, and, and they, that could make you angry. So, um, so there are reasons why right anger is possible. God is angry at idolatry, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, at least three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is angry. He was angry at their hard-heartedness. Uh, he was angry. He was, there was indignation because they would not allow the children to come to him. And we all know the, the temple cleansing incident where they, they take his house of prayer and into, take it and turn it into a den of thieves. Uh, he, he becomes angry. So it, it appears that uh, anger for the right reason is appropriate, but not from this text, but in other texts. Uh, this is probably better translated as a, a concessive or a, uh, or a conditional imperative. When you get angry or if you get angry. Anger sometimes happens. 
But when you do get angry, what Paul seems to say is don't sin. Right? Don't, don't let anger go on to sin. So the, the, Paul's interest here is not to promote anger, but to prevent sin. Uh, so you, we may go to other passages and justify righteous anger, uh, but you know, we ought to be very, very careful. Jesus is completely righteous, so everything he does, even in his anger, he's righteous. We are completely sinful. So even when we are righteously angry, we could be sinful. So we have to be careful. Anger provides that environment where sin can flourish. Uh, later on in this passage in chapter 4, verse 31, Paul seems to prohibit all forms of anger. He'll throw out a list of things that are related to anger. James, uh, Cynthia read chapter 3, verse well, uh, chapter 3 well about controlling our tongue because with that same tongue we curse people. Uh, you would get angry if somebody cursed you, wouldn't you? Uh, but in chapter, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And that's one of the characteristics, characteristics of God. He is long-nosed. Uh, he has a long fuse. Be slow to anger. And James gives the motivation. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Even when we are angry at the right things, because of our sinfulness, our righteous anger can lead to sin. So that's why Paul warns, don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, it's not permission to justify holding on to your anger to the rest of the day. Uh, you know, the sun hasn't gone down yet, I have to be angry. That's not the thought. <laughs> uh, it's like, get rid of your anger quickly. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain's sacrifice is not, and Cain gets angry. And God tells him, why are you angry? If you do the right thing, wouldn't your sacrifice also be accepted? Uh, sin is crouching at your door. God would send Cain, so tell Cain. But instead of doing the right thing, he continues on in his anger, anger that leads to the murder of his brother. That's why Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on anger. And the reason, or it's a further command, continued prolonged anger, anger that is held on to, gives room for the devil. It's a, the devil which is no longer our master, who is no longer the one in whose hands we were comfortably numb, uh, is still seeking to gain a foothold, a place in our lives. And once you give it a place, uh, he's going to try to take the rest of, uh, rest of yours as well. So don't give place to the devil, because when you remain angry, it leads to further sin. Unresolved anger opens us to Satan's work of dividing us. Paul has more to say about anger in just a few minutes, in just a few verses later. Thirdly, he says, uh, stop stealing and, and, and start working so that you may have something to share. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do not steal is the eighth commandment, right? Exodus chapter 20. Uh, it is repeated in, in, in uh, the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, verse 9. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul asked a long list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, thieves are among those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. No wonder the Lord has to die between two thieves, that even thieves can be saved, because Jesus can take away the sins of even thieves if they uh, repent and turn to him. But in this case, Paul is not giving them that commandment, do not steal, but rather, he's telling them to stop doing something that they're already doing. Uh, let him who steals no longer steal. You know, stealing, as now, back in the day, when this is written, took many forms. It could be as much as uh, slaves pilfering from their masters, or in the marketplace, where there is a hungry person grabbing something and running, or uh, shopkeepers with their uh, adjusted weights and measures, uh, stealing from their customers. Uh, even, even in the church, people stealing from one another was a reality. Uh, or, as he would write to the Thessalonians, people who, believing that Jesus' coming was imminent, had stopped working and were, were being parasites on other members. All of that, stealing, is like lying because it destroys the integrity of the community. The example of Ananias and Sapphira uh, is where, where lying and stealing kind of converge over there. Uh, they say that they are giving something to the Lord, but they are not giving that to the Lord. In that sense, they are stealing, and that's 
lying before the Lord, and they're immediately put to death by God. And you wonder why? Because the Spirit of God is doing something remarkable, amazing. It's never happened before in that He is forming a new community where the Spirit Himself dwells. And in that community, there's no room for lying and stealing. And God takes it seriously. An Old Testament example of that would be Achan, uh, who steals from Ai instead of destroying it. And that impacts the whole community. But what are we to do instead? We are to work. The word for work, labor, is a, way, it's a, work of, it's a word of uh, hard work. Uh, everybody is encouraged to work. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, not encouraged, commanded. We are to work to provide for our families. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. Uh, and Paul tells us in First uh, Timothy chapter 5 that he who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. But here... You are command, we are commanded to work, not that we may have, not to provide for our families, but that we may have something to give to meet others' needs. This is the gospel at work. Uh, we who are taking things from others, things that do not belong to us, because of the transforming work of the gospel, we can work so that we may have something to give to others. There's something that often goes unnoticed here. Uh, what's translated as doing honest work is actually doing good work, working the good, using your hands to do the good. Work is good. Most of us don't feel that way on Monday morning. <laughs> uh, yeah. But God created man for work. There was no one to till the garden, so God made man. Read Genesis chapter 2. We were made for work. And if you have this notion that, you know, when the kingdom comes, we'll be sitting on harps, uh, on clouds with our little harps. No, we'll be working. Uh, the work will no longer be a burden. The sweat will, of uh, labor will be removed. Work will be a joy. Uh, and what we produce with our hands will be so good that we will be taking it to Zion to present before the king. And like children uh, will bring their parents and say, look what I made. Uh, we will be showing to God, look what I made because of what you've done for me. Uh, and we can do that now, and we can share that goodness with others. So good work is not just for uh, making a living. It's not just for keeping myself busy. It's not just for providing for my family. It's an opportunity to care for others, for generosity. That's what the early church was known for. You read in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 20, back way back in Deuteronomy, God told the Israelites, uh, if they were to take care of the widow and the orphan and the foreigner among them, there will be no poor among you. But the poor were always with them. Even when the Lord was here, Jesus would say, the poor you'll always have with you. But for the first time when he come to Acts chapter 4, because believers are actively selling their possessions and sharing what they had with others, we are told for the first time and the only time, there was no needy person among them. Not because everybody had what they needed, but everybody who had shared what they had so that those who had, were in need were provided for. Fourthly, uh, he talks about corrupting speech versus gracious speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, only that such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The word uh, corrupting is, could refer to filthy, unwholesome, foul, bad. It's it used, used of vegetables and fruits that are gone bad. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, the tree that bears bad fruit, that's that word. Um, and in Matthew chapter 13 is that rotting fish that needs to be tossed back into the waters. The concern is not just for filthy language, but language that destroys, language that dares down, uh, tears down. That's what uh, the, the James 3 passage that Cynthia read talked about. And, and that kind of a corrupting language, uh, corruptive language is destructive to Christian community. It's antithetical to our witness to our Lord because our Lord is in the business of building us up. And if we are tearing each other down with our words, we are working against the Lord and working for the powers. Instead, Paul says, instead of corrupt language, we are to, we are to speak words that are good for building up. As much as our work provides the good that meets the need of other people, our speech that is good builds people. Gracious speech, speech that edifies, speech that encourages Speech that is truthful, because we've been told we don't lie to people to encourage them and edify them. We speak the truth to them, but we speak the truth to them in a way that uh, builds them up, what is good for them. And it says, give grace 
to those who hear. We have received, God has uh, bestowed grace, Christ has poured out his abundant grace on us. Chapter 4, verse 7, not only for salvation, not only for ministry, but also that we have so much grace that we have received from God that we can freely give what we have received, extending grace to all with whom we interact, with all we speak to. Uh, we should be known as people who speak grace to each other. And all of this is, uh, this is immediately tied to the unwholesome talk and corrupt, uh, corrupting language, but it covers the whole gamut. Don't grieve the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, there's numerous, there are numerous ways of grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Thessalonians, don't quench the Spirit. In the, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, we're told they're resisting the Spirit. Uh, Stephen's speech. Uh, so it's not just unwholesome talk that grieves the Spirit, falsehood, theft, all other things that are destructive to the community are grievous to the Spirit because the Spirit is doing the work of building up the community. So when we destroy community by any of these things, we are working against the Spirit and it grieves the Spirit that we work against his purposes. Remember chapter 4, we can preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit in, in producing, you know, he's gathering up all things under Christ, starting from the church. And when we in the church are working against the Spirit by doing those things, saying those things that divide the body, we are working against what God is doing. And notice, we are told, it is the Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. This is where, you know, eschatology meets ethics. We live today in light of tomorrow. Uh, John would write the same thing in his first epistle. Those who have this hope in themselves, those who have the hope of seeing the Lord face to face, when, when we see Him, we shall be like Him. He says, those who have this hope ought to purify themselves now. Because we live in light of who we are, who we will be. Uh, that's the same thing he says here. Uh, the Spirit is the one who seals and signifies our salvation. He's the one who's going to complete our salvation. If that's the case, how incongruous it is for saved people to work against the Spirit who is working out the salvation in its present form for us and will conform the future of our salvation. His work is to complete our redemption by forming Christ in us. We, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we... Um, get in the way of his work and continue in our old ways, the life of Adam. But ultimately in grieving the spirit, it is we who suffer. Right? Who would we rather serve? Our Lord who is gracious, who gave himself for us, or these powers that seek to enslave us in death and sin? So instead of grieving the Holy Spirit, Paul would tell us later in chapter 5, we ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because grieving the Holy Spirit is to oppose what God is doing because it's life that is antithetical to God's calling in our lives. But instead, when we are filled with the Spirit, we live the way God calls us to live. Then Paul has this long list of things that we need to put off and needs to be replaced with that which is of God. These are bad attitudes, but they're all tied to anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. These are, again, actions and attitudes that are hostile and destructive of community. And they're all in the sphere of anger. Malice is kind of sums up all of these other things, the previous five. And all are corrosive to community. They're all antithetical to walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Bitterness is something that has this acrid taste uh, remember the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and they needed water and they found this bitter waters of Marath that's undrinkable? Uh, bitterness has to do with hard-heartedness. Hard this is resentment that we hold on, a festering anger that refuses to forgive, that refuses to let go, or even when offering forgiveness refuses to forget. I love one of the, I shouldn't love it, but this is what one of the commentators says. He says, bitterness, uh, the per bitter person is the one who refuses reconciliation, cherishes resentment, and lives in a perpetual state of animosity. We've seen people like that. I hope we have not, and we are not people like that. 
It says, put away rage and anger. Those are just two forms of wrath. Anger that boils over. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 8 and 11 says, it's a fool who gives full vent to his anger. A wise man doesn't do that. He stays away from that wrath. Clamor has to do with shouting and screaming and loud yelling and angry outburst. We see that in families. Uh, we see that at parents yelling at the kids. Those are destructive ways of living. Uh, it, it, those who bear the impact of those things, their lives are affected. Churches often are found that way as well, which is very sad. We, we live in a, we used to be ashamed of these things when people yell at each other like, no, isn't that embarrassing? But now we take videos and put it on TikTok and, and call them names, right? So uh, we celebrate anger, we celebrate outbursts, uh, being true to yourself, not your new self, but your old self. Slander, a speech that, uh, att that attacks the reputation of another person. It seeks to destroy that person through words. The words may be true, uh, but the intent is wrong. It's to tear down that person. It's to make that person look bad. The motive is to destroy. And malice uh, sums up all of these things. It comes from a bad heart, Matthew chapter 15. It's evil. It's, it seeks to destroy others when God seeks to build up and give life. Instead, we are to cold, close ourselves with, uh, with the virtues of God himself, virtues that aid community. Notice the repetition of one another. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Kindness or is the same word as goodness. It's a characteristic of God himself. Psalmist would say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord is kind. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, according to Romans chapter 2. Compassion or tenderheartedness is also God's characteristics. In Luke, characteristic. in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, God is tenderhearted. Jesus is tenderhearted. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. Believers are called to be tenderhearted in 1 Peter chapter 3. So instead of being bitter and angry and clamoring and, and slanderous, we are instead called to forgive. Uh, community requires forgiveness because community in this fallen world will always involve conflict. Uh, but what to do with that conflict is what matters. If you let anger fester, leading to bitterness, that's living like our old self, the new self. As people who have experienced God's kindness in Jesus, ought to forgive one another because that's what the standard is. As God in Christ forgave you. That's the model. That's the motivation. That's the standard for forgiveness. As God as in Christ has forgiven you, so forgiving one another is not an option for us. That's our identity. That's who we are, people who are forgiven. And therefore, we can't refuse forgiveness to others. I, I love that lady from uh, one of the family members of the Buffalo uh, shooting. You know, she was angry. But at the end, she said, I want to find forgive, but it is so difficult. Uh, you see her heart. Uh, she's truthful, but in the midst of her anger, she wants to forgive. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 uh, through eight, 7 and 8 where Paul was blessing God for the redemption. He says, in his son we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We love that. God, thank you for lavishing your grace on me that my sins as terrible as they are have been taken away. But then we turn around and say, what did you do to me? <laughs> uh, Jesus has told us parables about those people, the man who uh, was forgiven much by the king and then turned around and refused to forgive the man who owed him little. Uh, that's who we are. We, have, we celebrate that we've been forgiven much by God, but we, we refuse to forgive the little slight that happened or conflict and, and we get angry and let bitterness fester and then we give a foothold for the devil. So. Every Sunday, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we have forgiven those who trespassed against us. There seems to be that tie between forgiving others and being forgiven by God. As, as people who daily need forgiveness from God, as people who daily go before God and say, forgive me, for I have sinned. 
uh, how terrible it is for us to refuse forgiveness to others. On what grounds can we go before God and say, forgive me, when I'm withholding forgiveness from someone else? All of this, Paul sums it up, be imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament, call us to be like God. That's what being made in the image of God means, right? Be like God, be holy, like God is holy, Leviticus. Uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew chapter 5. You know, that's our favorite excuse, right? I'm, I, I'm not perfect. God says you ought to be perfect like uh, he is perfect. Well, how can that happen would be that question that we ought to ask. Be merciful like our Father is merciful. Be loving as our Father is loving. So it's a family trait. We are God's children. We have been adopted into God's family. Chapter 1, verse 5. God is our Father. Chapter 3, verses 14, 15. Our self, the new self, is being created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. So this expectation that we be imitators of God is the right expectation coming out of what God has done for us in Christ by, uh, by His indwelling Spirit and being united to His Son. Uh, we are the children of the Father and the call is to be like our Father. And the uh, imitation of God here is the imitation of Christ. Walk in love as Christ loved us and it's it and to be like God to be imitators of God is, is summed up in in loving one another so walk in love is a summary virtue as Christ as, as God has loved us in Christ that's the pattern that's the standard for love a Christ kind of love not the sentimental sappy stuff that songs are made of it's a sacrificial cross-shaped love this is a very theologically rich passage who gave himself for us. Here's where we get the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He gave himself for us. In our place, in my place, he stood condemned for my sins, having no sins of his own. He took my place, taking away my sin. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is where they get the doctrine of propitiation from, not just this passage. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You and I can't add anything to that. So therefore we go before God uh, to, with, with what God is satisfied. You can't bring anything in your hands and say, God, here's what I brought. Add this to what Jesus did and maybe you can forgive me. No, Jesus, what Jesus has done is enough. Having made satisfaction for our sins, he sat at God's right hand. Uh, he has done the work and he did it because he loved us. The Father sent the Son because he loved us. The Son loved us that he gave himself for us on that cross. That's what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do we live out this great salvation that God has accomplished for us? How do we live out this transforming work by the power of the Holy Spirit as witnesses to the Lordship of Christ Jesus over all powers, all authorities. We put away falsehood and speak truth. We don't sin when we are angry. We don't steal but work to give to those in need. We give up corrupting speech for gracious, uplifting speech. We get rid of bitterness and learn to forgive. And above all, we imitate God by imitating His Son in whose likeness we are being formed by the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to go home and think, I'm going to try harder, you, you can't. <laughs> yeah, this is the work of God himself through his spirit who forms us to be like Christ, to conform us to the image of God in which he were made. We yield to the spirit and not grieve the spirit in what he's accomplishing in us. There's one more. There's always one more. Uh, we saw these descriptions of what life in Christ ought to look like. Paul went three chapters long uh, with, with all these things that seemed abstract to us, but we need to know what God has done before we can live in light of what God has done. What God's work always goes before our response. Uh, it's always theology that determines ethics. Uh, if we are to imitate God, we need to know who God is, what is He like, and what He has done before we can be like Him. So Paul tells us, walk in relationship. Uh, so that's what all of this is about, walking in relationship. We are people who are loved by God. We are people who have been forgiven by God. We are people who are redeemed by Christ. We are people who are indwelt by the Spirit. We have a relationship with God. Live like those who have a relationship with God. 
And that relationship with God brings us into relationship with one another. Uh, that old t-shirts that you say, jam, Jesus and me, uh, it has to be changed a little bit. Jesus and me and you and everybody else in Jesus as well. Can't put all of that on one t-shirt, right? But you can't belong to Jesus by yourself. You belong to Jesus along with everybody else who belongs to Jesus. And therefore these relationships, to be what they need to be, these qualities are necessary. Um, our relationship with God is the basis for our relationship with all people. It's our witness to the world of what God is like and what God has done and is doing in Christ. It calls for a rejection of self-centeredness. Uh, and these commands are impossible to obey if we are driven by self-interest. If we are driven by self-interest, we'll lie, we'll steal, we'll be bitter, uh, so on. Truth. Truth is necessary for unity in community. You know, falsehood, lying destroys community. We are part of one body. Remember, imagine your part, your eye lying to your feet. There's no hole in the ground there, just walk off. Don't do that. Your eyes are watch out. So parts of the body don't lie to each other because that's how God has put together for each of us to protect one another. Uh, and what's at stake here is not just speech, but integrity in words, in, in action. It's imitating God who does not lie. Imagine God being up there saying, oh, I didn't really mean that, I was just kidding, joking. No. Uh, how do we lie? Uh, there's outright spoken lies, but also uh, withholding truth is in one sense lying. We don't speak the truth about somebody, whether it's flattery or if it's, uh, or, or, or condemning a person without looking at the good things that are in their lives. Um, falsifying expense report, not putting in the hours that we are supposed to work, taking credit for what others have done. Um, all of this is lack of integrity. How about the church? Uh, do we, uh, you know, the, the worst form of lying in the church is the, the pretense of righteousness and purity as we got it all together. Uh, when we do that, you know, um, we, we forsake the grace of God that's given to us by which he, he changes us. But speaking truth to one another, uh, that's how correction happens. You know, God doesn't just shout from the sky. He speaks to us through each other, speaking truth to one another from his word. So mutual correction is necessary. Uh, otherwise, people will just keep going in their false ways to their destruction. Speak truth in love, always in love. Uh, temper, Christians get angry, Christians should get angry. When we see injustice, when we see poverty, when we see racism, when we see abuse, we should get angry. But this is not that passage to justify anger. Uh, it's a passage that calls us to prevent anger, not to promote it. Because anger, let's face it, is often destructive, even if it starts for all the right reason. It soon consumes us. But instead, what are we to do? We are to uh, give room for God's wrath. Uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Uh, let him take care of it. He's just. He knows all things. He will be the right judge. Our anger is often self-centered. You know, it's, uh, sometimes we, we don't even own up to that. We say, you made me angry. Uh, no, no, you got angry. I didn't make you anything. Uh, it's a, our response. We need to take ownership of it, but we need to deal with it quickly, move on, don't let it lead to resentment, which leads to bitterness, leads to all kinds of sin, opens the door to the devil. Work. You know, theft comes natural. Have you ever seen kids? That's mine. Like, no, it's not yours, it's hers. Like, no, it's mine. The child decided it was his, and he's going to take it. And, and we don't really grow out of it. We have different forms of doing it. Uh, there are various kinds of, steal, uh, of stealing. You know, the poor steal, and then they are... Uh, you know, take into court and, and uh, but the rich also steal and the rich get richer at the expense of the poor and they are applauded for that. Integrity with, prop, with property is, is important for how we, uh, um, how we live with each other. I love well the, what the Heidelberg Catechism uh, teaches about the Eighth Commandment, about stealing and about work. In question 110 of the Heidelberg Catechism is asked, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Do not steal. 
God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Did you get the last part? Pointless squandering of his gifts. If we don't give, use what God has given us according to God's purposes, that's stealing from God and stealing from one another, because God gives so that we may care for one another. I also love the next question. What does God require of you in this commandment? What is the putting on here from the putting off of do not steal? That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. That's what it means, stop stealing. So we work not just to have, not just to retire well, but to be able to do good, to, to have things to give. But also work itself is good. We don't see it as merely a means to survive. So when you teach children, when you heal the sick, when you produce goods, when you build homes, uh, whatever we do, it's what God has given us, the means by which we glorify God. Because all creation belongs to God, and every work in creation can be done as unto God. You don't have to become a pastor or a missionary to serve God. Whatever you're doing as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where God has placed you to serve Him. And that's the good you do, and the good you do is for the good of others and for the glory of God. For speech... You know, God creates with his speech. That's the very first thing you hear about God in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks and things come about, right? So, and that's how God creates, through his words. And that's what our words are supposed to do as well. Communication, rightly done, will build relationships. With our, with our words, we build understanding that is necessary for community. Uh, but, but the world is opposed to that. It's driven by hostility. We see that everywhere. Twitter. That's like a cesspool. I got out of it because I just couldn't. Like people being, it's like those uh, drone-up warriors. You know, you, they, some of them get PTSD because they're killing people they can't even see. But that's what we do on Facebook and Twitter all the time, you know, putting out our rage on people we have never met. And, uh, and we destroy their lives by our posts and uh, our memes. And, uh, and we don't care. But that's not what we ought to be if we are the children of God. Anger destroys families. Uh, shouting, violence, all of these is a, is a betrayal of our faith. There's bitterness, anger often in the church as well when our leaders make decisions that are contrary to our desires and our wishes. We gossip, we slander. Um, we are, as believers, people who have traded our hostility for helpfulness. So every time we open our mouth to speak, we have an opportunity to either build up or tear down. Forgiveness, that's who we are. We are people who are forgiven. We are people who are called to forgive ourselves and others. So refusal to forgive. Sometimes it's very hard to forgive, it's especially when we have suffered great wrong. Uh, but a lot of times we refuse to forgive because of self-centered reasons, because we want to hold on to the hurt. Well, we said, what about justice? Doesn't forgiveness take away justice? No, forgiveness actually acknowledges we have nothing to forgive if wrong has not been done. Forgiveness acknowledges the wrong. Uh, somebody said to forgive is to choose to suffer again. You suffered when you suffered offense the first time, but in forgiveness you give up that desire for revenge. Give it to God. When we go before God for ourselves, we desire not justice but mercy. Right? So... Um, that's what it means to be like God, to extend mercy to people who don't deserve it. The flesh cares, you know, craves for revenge. It, it destroys us. It turns us to callousness, to cynicism. But when Christians forgive, that's a great testimony. We all marvel at forgiveness of when the Amish uh, community forgave that school shooter who killed their children. Like, how could they? This has to be the work of God. When that uh, man in Dallas who forgave that uh, off-duty police officer who killed his brother, in, 
uh, that was how people are like, how could you do that? That um, I, I mentioned that lady this morning on uh, who was struggling to forgive, but that that she even wants to forgive is a testimony to her relationship with God that that such a terrible wrong has been done to her and her family, and she struggles to forgive. That's part of our witness, the people of Emmanuel Baptist, to forgive the the killer who entered into their sanctuary and and killed many of them, including their pastor. But why do we forgive? Because that's what God did for us through Christ on the cross. So it's only when, the, when Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's when the thief on the cross next to him turns to him and said, Surely this one is the, the Son of God. And, uh, it's that through his forgiveness, Christ makes himself known. If this one on a cross being unjustly crucified could forgive... Uh, there is something about him that speaks of his relationship with God and that should be true of us as, as well. See, there's, there's no such thing as community that lacks uh, conflict. If you have community, you're going to have conflict in this world. What we do with that conflict is matters. Forgiveness and reconciliation is the way. Jean Venier, not a name you used because he had committed terrible sin himself, but he said this. He said, if we come into community without knowing that the reason we come is to learn to forgive and be forgiven seven times, 77 times, we will soon be disappointed. If you're here and thinking that you are going to be you're the perfect people, you will be disappointed. You will have many opportunities to forgive and be forgiven. Finally, grieving the Spirit and imitating God. So we depend on the Holy Spirit to fulfill all of these commands. If we grieve the spirit through whom we can obey these commands, then there's, we're going to live as though the powers are still in authority. This is a summary statement that uh, uh, calls us to get rid of all of those things that Paul asks us to get rid of so that we may be conformed to God's image. We, we, gr we grieve the spirit when we don't live to the praise of glory. God's glory. We grieve the spirit when we lie, when we steal, when we refuse to forgive, when our words are corrupt instead of building people up. Instead, we are to be filled with the spirit. And that's the key to the Christian life. And all of this is an imitation of God. So God made us in our image. In our sin, the image was shattered, but not destroyed. And God in Christ is forming us in Christ so that we may be restored to the image. And what does it mean to be like God in Christ? It means to love others and not just ourselves. In loving others, we not only help them, but we experience God's work in us. How many of us, like, I, I know a doctor that Laura was a, was a mentor to Laura. He, before he came to Christ, he was such an angry, hateful person. But there was a transformation that he came to Christ through his son's testimony that was such a transformation that he was the most loving, caring physician in, uh, in that, that hospital. Love of God experienced transforms us and it's extended to others. We are to love others as God has freely loved us. Is it easy to love people? There are a lot of people it's hard to love, but then we need to ask ourselves, are we easy to love? And God has yet loved us and therefore we are to love others even if it means carrying a cross. Let's pray. Father, uh, these things that you tell us to rid of, those are the things that come natural to us. We don't have to put out much effort to be that, to be that because that's how we are. But in Christ, you have freed us from being who we are to be like you. Help us to be people who yield to the Spirit that He can form Christ in us and not continue on as though the powers are still in authority. Help us to live in such a way that testifies to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who live under His Lordship are people who are united to one another by bonds of love that cannot be broken, that is expressed in speaking truth, in working to serve others, words that build each other up through gracious speech. And in all of this, Lord, may we live as witnesses for Christ to your glory, our Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbc.org.
nyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.